All right, we are going to continue our study in the book of Romans. We've been there for, I think, since June. And so we've had breaks off and on and, and visited other subjects, and sometimes it's gone almost a whole month or maybe more that we didn't get into the book of Romans. But tonight we're going to continue our study in Romans chapter 9. We've made it through the first eight books. And the first eight books are kind of of a, we've reached a climax in the book in, in chapter 8. And now he's going to come back and address some other things or address questions that may have come up because of some of the statements that he made in the first eight chapters. Now, Romans was uh, written as a letter by the missionary Paul, right? He was in Corinth in the spring of uh, AD 58. He was there for about three months, and while he's there, he writes a letter to these believers in the city of, of Rome, a place he'd never been, but he knew many of the people there because when we get to chapter 16 in his, in his letter, we see that he tells the people carrying this letter to, you know, say hi to this person, say hi to that person, people that he had relationship with and knew. And in the church at Rome, there was both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. So tonight, I want you to take, as we go through chapter 9 and um, into chapter 10, I want you to think of how they may have been hearing it at that time. Today, it's nothing new for us to say, yeah, the gospel's for the whole world. It's for all the Gentiles. It's not just for the Jews. We've accepted that several thousand years ago. But back in their day, this is new to some of them. You know, especially if you were a Jew. Imagine you being a young Jewish person. You've come to the service there, and they read this letter that this guy sends from, you know, over in Corinth. And in this letter, it talks about how that, yeah, the Jews were the chosen people, but now they've been set aside. And, oh, by the way, the law, keeping all the law, that's not really how you walk and enter into righteousness, but it's by faith. And he makes all these wild statements all the way through Rome that would absolutely rock your world if that was the only thing you knew. If being born and raised a Jew, God's chosen people, it's because you would have confidence in your physical bloodline rather than in your spiritual status with the Lord. And so, when you hear some of the statements that Paul says, some of the questions that he asks in chapter 9, it begins to make more sense when you realize who may be hearing this, who may be, be reading this. The whole book of Romans can be summed up in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the theme and the purpose of the entire letter. I'll just read those verses to you and then we'll go right to chapter 9. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because... Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. Alright? He says, I'm not ashamed of that good news of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to Everyone who believes. First to the Jew, because that's who he came to first, and also to the Greek, or the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. See, what God did by faith will lead you into more faith. And the righteous will live by faith, not visit a place of faith. It's a place of abiding, a place of living. And so that's the theme and the purpose of the letter to the Roman church. And we'll jump in here at um, chapter 9 and begin in verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. 
my conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit or with me. My conscience testifies with me by the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's go back to verse 1. And here he is, he's talking about Israel's rejection of Christ. And then the result that came out of that. But in verse 1, he says this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me by the Holy Spirit. Now the word conscience here means co-perception. Co-perception. If you are a co-owner, that means there's more than one owner. There's two. Co-owner. Two owners. Co-perception is there's two perceptions here. There's yours, and then there's a, another one. And so, this co-perception, this conscience, is testifying to Him, is witnessing to Him, and is agreeing, being agreed with, by the Holy Spirit on the inside of Him. Saying, yeah, yeah, what you're saying is true. You're not lying about this. And then He makes, you know, He says, you know, I, I would wish that I myself were cursed and cut off. I mean, that's like really strong language. This is eternal damnation. Like, he'd be willing to do that if his people would be saved. Paul loved them a lot. And see, you have to remember, go back and hear, why would he make such an extreme statement? He just got done basically telling the Jews, yeah, all of that's for naught. And so they're like, wait a minute, what, 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 what did you just say? And so he's assuring them of his love for them. And that I'd take your place, if I could. But in verse 1, he talks about conscience. Now, conscience isn't something that maybe you hear preached a lot about. Um, in, in this house, we talk a lot about being spirit-led and paying attention to your spirit. And there's a lot of overlap when we talk about that or when we use the word conscience. Okay? Usually we're terming it and being spirit-led, being sensitive in your spirit. And, but tonight, I'm going to use the word conscience. Because they, while they are two separate things, I want you to see some important things tonight about conscience. There's all kinds of states of the conscience. Your conscience is talking to you. Saying, yay, yay, or nay, nay. Yes, you should do that. No, you shouldn't do that. Right? It's always witnessing on the inside to you. And you can have a, a good and a clear conscience, or you can have a conscience that's defiled. You can have a conscience that isn't even... Right. It might be convicting you of something that's not wrong, but your conscience is trained wrong. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I'll give you an example of what I'm meaning. Is you take an Amish person, if you put him into a car and have him drive it, his conscience might, might work on him and trouble him because you're doing something wrong. Now, is it wrong to drive a car? No. Not at all. So is his conscience accurate in its assessment of what is sin or not? No. That's why it's important to have a renewed mind. Okay? But in, in this particular case, if he's feeling guilty from driving a car, then we shouldn't stand there and encourage him to drive a car. 
Let's go back and get his mind renewed and his understanding and his heart renewed to what the will and purpose of God is, and then that will correct his, his, his conscience. I want to, uh, I'm just going to camp on this for a while on, on your conscience. In the New Testament, even though we don't, we don't maybe use this word a lot, um, in the New Testament, the word conscience or consciences or consciousness, consciousness appears 32 times in the New Testament. And Paul used it 21 times in his letters, not counting the book of Hebrews. Because there's some debate about whether or not Paul wrote Hebrews, or maybe it was someone else. But take the book of Hebrews away from the count, and he, he used this word 21 times in his letters. So maybe it's a little bigger deal than what we think of immediately on the surface. You know, growing up as a Mennonite kid, I, they definitely talked about our conscience because... You know, that was our, our guide on the inside. Well, once I became Spirit-filled, I realized that paying attention to the Holy Spirit within me is of much greater importance. Right? And so that's where our teaching and our focus shifted is to being Spirit-led. But I do want to draw out the importance of why you might your conscience will make a massive difference for you uh, receiving from the Lord or not. Like you can, it can be a hindrance or it can be a, a, a help to you. So I'm going to have you look up or turn with me to some scriptures. We'll have some up on the screen. Some I'll just read to you. You can uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'll read a verse as you're going over there. This is what Paul said in, in Acts chapter 23. Verse 1, he says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. In all good conscience to this day. So he considered it an important thing to talk about, I've got good conscience. Right? It's not just, he wasn't just trying to fill up space in the book of Acts. So in 1 Timothy 1, in in, uh, verse 5, we'll begin reading. Actually, I'll read like verse 5 and verse 18 and 19 to you. Verse 5, it says, Now the goal of our instruction, now remember, this, this letter in Timothy, Paul wrote it to Pastor Timothy. And uh, who was a disciple of Paul's. So he's writing the letter and he's telling him how to lead the church and how to pastor them. He says, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So notice that he mentions a pure heart and a good conscience. So heart and conscience are not the same thing. Later we'll see a scripture where mind and conscience is named. So mind and conscience are not the same thing. Sometimes you'll read about having um, the word heart or the word conscience is, can be translated either way. But in the same way, sometimes the word heart is translated mind, sometimes it's translated spirit. And so we, you have to use some discernment when you're reading through and looking at this. But here he says, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Almost like a pure heart, a good conscience would help you having a sincere faith. In verse 18, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, or remembering these prophecies, you may fight the good fight. Having faith, and a good conscience. And a good conscience. Some have rejected these. They've rejected what? Faith and a good conscience. And what has happened to them? They've been 
had the shipwreck of their faith. If you have, if your conscience is bothering you, if you're not in a place of a good and a clear conscience, it can shipwreck your faith. Because that will, it, it winds up inviting in condemnation. And when your conscience is beaten up on you, pretty soon you're like, well, I should be dealing with that. And if you don't deal with that, then you become hardened. And you begin to override your conscience. And, and I'm getting ahead of myself in. So we're looking at good conscience right now. Um, so for the next scripture, well, let's look at a clear conscience. Go to Acts 24, verse 16. Acts 24 and 16. He makes a statement here that's important, that we, we should try to do the same. He says, I always strive. Always strive means, man, I'm putting forth effort on this thing. I'm working at it. I'm always working at it. What does he say? I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. Now what... This is precious real estate in Scripture. There's only so much that's there. And there's, in fact, John said if all the things Jesus would have done would have been written, it would take more books than, than the, the earth could hold, right? So, why would he find it so necessary to say, I always strive to have a clear... He could have said lots of other things right there. I always strive to have joy in the Lord. I always strive to show forth the gentleness or the goodness of God. I always strive... He could have listed, you name it, and put it in the blank. But he said this, I always strive to have a clear conscience. Towards God and men. So not just God, but also towards men. Do you remember the story of David? How that David, um, before he's king, now he'd been anointed king, and he's on the run from Saul. And in 1 Samuel 24, he is hiding in the cave with a whole group of his warriors, and Saul is out hunting David. And Saul comes into the cave to... Um, either sleep or go to the bathroom, I'm not sure which. If you look at different translations, they say it different ways. But he comes into the cave, and David and his guys are hiding in there. And one of the guys, I mean, the guys around David are encouraging him, David, here's your chance. Get him. This, this, this is just like the prophecies that were made about you, that you would be able to conquer your enemies, and now's your chance. And so David sneaks up on him. Of course, they're, they're all trying to be quiet. I mean, because there's 3,000, an army of 3,000 or a bunch of them right outside the cave. So you don't want to make any noise and have them come in. And so they're, they're being very stealthy, very quiet. Don't wake them up. You know, they're, with, they're very, very quiet. And he goes over there and they think, okay, here he's going to do it. And then he's like, he, he's, he's cutting off a piece of his rope. What's he doing? He's cutting a piece. He comes back with this piece of robe. And they're like, what are you doing, David? And you know, he's trying to, Shh, you know, it's, it's okay. We're not going to kill him. We're not going to do this against him this time. And they're like, well, yeah, but wh- why? And, and anyhow, he keeps him calmed down. All he does is cut a piece of robe off. And Saul gets finished. He's done. He walks out of the cave. And after he's out of the cave, David comes out of the cave and says, hey. And he shows him. The, the robe and basically makes the point I could have had you right there and you would have been finished but I didn't because I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed but there's an interesting thing that it says in verse 5 it says now it happened afterward this is immediately while he's there when he did it afterward that this is before he presents himself to, to Saul afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe 
His heart troubled him. The uh, New King James Version says it that way. The CSB says it this word. Afterwards, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. The literal translation says, and it happened afterward, the heart of David struck him. Struck him. The King James says that his heart smote him. There's a word we should bring back. Smote. I like that. His heart smote him. The, the BBE translation says, and David was full of regret for cutting off Saul's skirt. Full of regret. So that's his conscience bothering him. Bothering him. Because he did something that disrespected the Lord's anointed. I mean, that's a, that's a tender conscience before the Lord. This is the same guy that the Lord said, he is a man after my own heart. This is the same guy that also committed murder and adultery with Bathsheba. But his heart smote him. What's interesting is when you look late in David's life, there's a very, very similar thing said about him. When in, This is in 2 Samuel 24. It's interesting that both of these accounts are in a Samuel 24. In 2 Samuel 24, you see where David is inspired of the devil to take a census of Israel because he was not supposed to do that. His guys around him told him, look, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. He chooses to do it anyway. And then it says that David's conscience or his heart said the same thing. It smote him. David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops. So we're talking about having a clear conscience. Is David at this point, does he have a clear conscience? No. He has a troubled conscience. He has a troubled conscience. What does David do about it? Because there is a way back. If you've got put yourself in a position where your conscience is troubling you, there is a way back. David took that way back right here in, in 2 Samuel 24.10. It says, David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. Repentance is the way back. Repentance. Repent to the Lord or repent to the person and that will clear a guilty conscience. Alright, continuing to read scriptures to you about having a clear conscience. Listen to what else he told Timothy. Paul did. He says in, uh, in 1 Timothy 3.9 holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He specifies clear conscience. Again, in 2 Timothy in chapter 1, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Why would he mention a clear conscience when he prays? Because if your conscience is smiting you, we're going to bring that word back yet. If your heart is smiting you when you're praying, guess what? It's eroding your confidence in you being answered. It's eroding you being like, well, I don't know, probably, yeah, I, and it's a distraction to you. And it stands in the way between you and the Lord, and it can hinder you from hearing. Hebrews 13, 18, you can put that up on the screen. Hebrews 13, 18 says this, Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience. Wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. Notice the link between David's conscience troubling him when he didn't act honorably towards King Saul. I mean, King Saul didn't deserve it, did he? 
But David's heart still troubled him. Notice the link between clear conscience and honor there versus what is said here in Hebrews 13 verse 18. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. In everything. When we act dishonorably, it destroys a clear conscience. Alright? There's such a thing as a weak conscience. A weak conscience. In 1 Corinthians 8, you can turn there. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 7 is where I'll begin reading. It says, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so... Okay, now what he had just talked about, the background here is... He was talking about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And if we would have read the previous verses, you would see that he says there's nothing wrong with that. But then he talks about hurting someone else by what you allow. Okay, And that's what he's talking about here. So so he's talking about the knowledge that Christ purifies everything. However, not everyone, in verse 7, has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience being weak, is defiled. Remember the Amish guy that is conscience troubles him because he drives a vehicle. Driving vehicles is not wrong, but it is wrong to him. He is defiling his conscience. And so here, it just calls that a weak conscience. It goes on in verse 8. Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat. And we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours, this right to eat, is in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, in other words, if someone sees you because you know that there is no God except one, and this food is sanctified, if someone sees you, you who have this knowledge, Dining in an idol's temple, won't his, the person seeing you, his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? And not because he knows it's sanctified, but because he's just overriding his conscience. See, that would be a problem. Motives are a pretty big deal to the Lord. You understand that, right? So then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Not, not by his knowledge, by your knowledge. But he doesn't have understanding. Remember us talking about a renewed mind. Romans 12. We have to have a renewed mind. Well he says here, now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. So there are people that have weak consciences and we need to be careful or cautious that we do not encourage them to violate their conscience. Remember just a couple weeks ago, um, I I taught or we answered the question about lying. The lie question. And we talked about conscience in that. And about not defiling each other. What does defiled mean? Defiled is simply stained. Marred. It's, It's not clean anymore. You have a nice clean window... And then you have your two-year-old come up and all over the window, right? Lick it, face press it, dirty, sticky hands. It's a defiled window. It's now not clear. You can't see through it except cloudy. That's what defiled is. It doesn't mean that it's going straight to hell. It doesn't mean none of that. It just means there's a problem. It needs cleaned. 
What the whole, uh, or the teaching. Okay. All right, so let's look more at a defiled or a corrupted or a contaminated would be another way of saying it. A contaminated conscience. In, in Titus, Titus 1 verse 15, this also shows that the conscience and the mind are not the same. They're not the same thing. Um, you, you have your logic, but then you also have your subconscious mind, people will call it in science today. Um, there's many different names you could put on it. But here he says uh, in verse 15 of chapter 1 to Titus, this is also Paul writing this to, to Titus. He says, to the pure, everything's pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Mind and conscience. See, he specifies both. They're not the same thing. It's not one and the same. Did you know there's something, go over to 1 Timothy 4, uh, there's something like a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4, in verse 1 and 2. Now, Jen, earlier tonight, had talked to us about doctrines of demons, the teachings of devils, she referred to it. This doctrine of devils of, of that the Lord wants you to be broke so that you can't afford to work in the kingdom even. All right. So she, she referenced that. Well, right here is a, the scripture where, where a statement about doctrines of devils comes from. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, it says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, how many would agree that we're in latter times? In latter times, some will depart from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits, spirits of trickery, and the teachings of demons. Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. Seared. What does seared mean? You know, if you take, it's like branded. When you see a brand on a, well, we probably don't have a whole lot of farmers here. Um, if, you, if you've ever burned yourself really, really badly, that skin became seared and numb. Right? Maybe it's thick, thicker skin there now. It's less feeling. It's seared. It's numb. Well, that's what happens to a conscience that goes on in things it knows it should not do. Doesn't matter if the conscience is accurate or not. I'm saying in, it might be telling you driving a car is wrong. It, your conscience may need to be trained in the ways of the Lord. But if you continually override that conscience, you will produce a hardness of conscience, a searedness that you now no longer... Because... Okay. The Lord wants to minister to you through your spirit. And your conscience is connected to your spirit. And if you have a hard layer there, it's hard for the Holy Spirit to bear witness with your spirit because there's this callous between the two of you. And so that's why it's important that if your conscience is beating you up for something, that you need to deal with that and maybe get your conscience retrained with the Word of the Lord. You know, is it right or is it not? Don't just plow on in against or through that that troubling of your conscience. Deal with it. Don't have a seared conscience. Um, look over at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. It talks about an evil conscience, or some translations call it a guilty conscience or a wicked conscience. But in Hebrews 10 in verse 19, it makes this statement. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. So, I read this because I want you to see Who's he talking to? He's talking to people that have been adopted into the kingdom of God. 
right? He's talking to the children of God. He says, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. The sanctuaries have an audience with God. All right, look at verse 22. He says, let us, he's still talking to us, to the brothers, to the brothers and sisters, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Here it uses the word heart, but we could say even spirit, that the heart is sprinkled clean from what? From a wicked conscience. From a guilty conscience. Did you know that the blood of Jesus can cleanse your conscience? And speaking of being cleansed, let's go over, look at uh, Hebrews 9, verse 14. Just a chapter earlier. It's talking about this same subject. He says, How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Jesus will cleanse your conscience. And when your conscience is smiting you, take it to the Lord, put it under the blood, ask Him if you're not sure, well, why can so-and-so do this and I can't? Why is it bothering me? Well, maybe they've just overrode conscience as well. Or maybe you have a wrong belief about something, but let the Lord break that down to you and be the revealer of secrets to you rather than just plowing through it. In 1 Peter 3.21 it says baptism. You understand water baptism is talking about. It says um, because it was comparing the flood and the people that were saved in the flood to baptism as we know it today. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, you're not getting a bath and your body's not clean. But the pledge, the pledge, how many know what a pledge is? Right? It's a, it's a commitment. A, a commitment or a pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism will also cleanse a conscience. I've, I've often told people this, but if you're dealing with some sort of addiction or having trouble with your conscience, be baptized again. How many of you have ever invited the Lord to be Lord of your life again? I mean, like I do every day, right? Lord, be my Lord today. I invite you. Lord it over me. Alright? So I'm not becoming born again again. I'm just reaffirming my commitment to it. So we shouldn't be so squeamish about, well, you mean they were baptized three times? I don't care. Make it a dozen times. Right? Because it signifies something. It signifies you dying with Christ and being resurrected with Him. And you're just putting yourself in remembrance with that and your conscience in remembrance of that. So if you're dealing with something, that's one of the ways to, for lack of better words, to reset or to cleanse your conscience. Alright, let's look at some safeguards. We're still on Romans 9.1. Verse 1. So let's look at some safeguards. Let's move quickly. Safeguards for your conscience or safeguards against selfish motives. In Colossians 3, in verse 14, I'll begin reading. 3.14. It says, above all. What does above all mean? It means, because the previous things he just listed were a lot of really good things. You can take the time and go back to read it. But I mean, like, they're really good God-like qualities that he just got done listing. Qualities of God. And then he goes, but, but above all of that, more than all of that, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So now you're operating in the love of God. And it says, verse 15, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, do what? Rule your hearts. The peace of Christ rule your hearts. You could say rule your conscience. 
Let the peace of God rule your conscience, the peace of Christ. And be thankful. Now here, I said that we're going to look at safeguards. Love is a safeguard. It'll keep you walking in a pure conscience. What's more is verse 16 and 17 answer it as well. It says, let the Word of Christ, the Word of God, dwell richly among you. What is that? That is a renewed mind. Right? A mind that has fed upon the Word of God and understands and knows the will of God, the purposes of God, the destiny that He has for you. At least what you need to know for right now. So let the Word of Christ dwell richly among you. And then this is what comes out of that. In all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. These songs in tongues. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, so your heart's full, you're full of the Word. So let's just say that right now. The Word of God fills me and works mightily in me. Then he makes a statement. So you're, you're now in a state of full of the Word of God, full of the presence of God, full of the Spirit of God. Your heart is ruled by peace. Your consciousness is ruled by peace. Verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through Him. If you do everything in the name of the Lord, as unto the Lord, this will guard you against having your conscience decimated by just plowing through. How many things do we do in the flesh that we're doing it because of fleshly reasons rather than as though it were to the Lord? Right? If you're dealing with an addiction, you know, I'll choose, I'll choose an easy one, like smoking, for example. Um, because there's some that... Once they want to break the habit. Now, if you if you want to go on smoking, I'm not here telling you smoking's not going to keep you out of heaven. All right, smoking is just you're doing something that's not great for your body. Kind of like people that eat too much sugar. Okay, doing something that's not great for your body. But your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, and if you recognize and you say, "Well, I don't want to smoke anymore. I don't want to put harmful things in my body." Okay, the next time you light up a cigarette, do it under the Lord. Lord, I light this one for you. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. This one's for you. I mean, how long are you going to be able to do that before it's like, yeah, I just can't do that anymore? Because I, I'm not, the Lord doesn't need it. He doesn't want it, right? And it'll help yourself break it. And this will safeguard your conscience because it'll very quickly show you where you are violating conscience. Because if you can't do it under the Lord, then you shouldn't be doing it. That goes for the movies you watch, you know. It goes for all the things we do and say and places we go. And I know, I'm stepping on all of our toes probably, mine included. This will guard you. In 1 John 3 is another, another place where it talks about guards for your conscience or for your heart. In 1 John 3, in verse 18, it says, Little children, we must not love with word or speech, or we could say only by word or speech. Certainly God wants us to love in word and speech. But we must not love by word or speech, but with truth and action. In other words, if we're going to love with our mouth, we better love with our actions as well. He goes on and says, this is how we will know. So just prior to this, he had been talking about if you see a need. Right? And if you tell them, okay, be blessed, go your way. There's financial need. Be blessed. Go your way, God bless you, and you don't do something to help them if you have the ability to. 
then your words are empty and it means nothing. And it's on the heels of that that he makes these statements. Little children, we must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. This is how we will know we belong to the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. Convince our hearts. Convince our conscience in his presence. Sometimes our conscience needs convincing. He says, even if our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our conscience. And He knows all things. Because there are times that your conscience is just simply not trained right. And will try to tell you something's wrong, but you did it as unto the Lord. Right? And if you're still dealing with conscience, take it to the Lord. He's greater than your conscience. He can help you. He can reset that for you. It says here, here now, now verse 21 is... The results of a clear conscience. Dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. What happens if we have confidence before God? Suddenly our prayers are being answered. We're asking for things we didn't ask for before because our prayers are being answered. We're confident the Lord has an audience with us. Right? This is the results of a clear conscience. And verse 22, and can receive whatever we ask from Him. Because we keep His commands and do what is pleasing in His sight. The results of clear conscience. And then finally in verse 24, He goes on, and if you're still having questions about this, it's His Spirit in you that's going to bear witness with you and and show you that you are a son of God. By His Spirit on the inside. But if your conscience isn't clear, you have trouble even picking that up from the Spirit on the inside that He put within you. Because there's that callous between you two. All right, all of that for verse 1. How are we on time? Okay, let's go. Verse 1. I speak the truth, back in Romans now, 9.1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me by the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, the Jews, okay, My own flesh and blood, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, and amen. Now, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Because remember, what came before this, he said again and again, now it's not to the Jew, but it's to... In fact, earlier he made statements about it's really the one... Maybe we'll read it here in just a moment. Really, it's the one who's circumcised in the heart that is the true Jew. Here he says, now it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Let me say it differently to you. Paul did not cease being a Jew when he became born again. He's still a Jew. Just a born again Jew. Right? The Jews who rejected, the chosen people who rejected, they were the children of God. Those that rejected the message of the Messiah are the ones who ceased being the Jew. The real Jew. The true Jew. Ceased being the Israel of God. It is those that have accepted that, that continue to be... Look, in, in Romans, you'll see this in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So he's just making the distinction that the Israel of God, those Paul didn't cease being a Jew, he's still a Jew. He's the one that was forsaken. He didn't forsake them, they forsook him. Do you see that? Read verse 7. Neither is it that... So he just said, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now he'll explain it in a natural way. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Well, he had Ishmael. But that's not where the promise came through, right? So, so he's making that analogy. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. So it's not the physical descent that ensures you getting into heaven. But the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. And the promise is open to all. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Verse 9, For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. Now remember, uh, verse 11, For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to the election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. So Isaac and Esau are both descendants of Isaac and uh, I said Isaac and uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are both descendants of Isaac, the one who, through whom the promise came. So why did one end up disqualified and one qualified? And he says here, he says the older will serve the younger. So that's been foreordained. He already sees that and he prophesied it to him before the little ones were even born. And then in verse 13, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, there's been lots and lots and lots and lots of ink put to paper on, by commentaries on these three chapters and what they mean and people understanding them from all different sides and angles. But one thing I just want to point out and mention here is very important that we interpret Scripture through or by other Scripture. So that when you read a verse, you don't take that as a standalone verse, but you read it through the lens of, of if you could put Scriptures on as sunglasses, you put on this, the sunglasses of that verse and now read it. And then this verse over here and now read it. And if you find something you don't understand, read the verse that came in front of it and the verse that comes behind it and start expanding and gathering context and your understanding will grow. Well, here, if we just read verse 13, as it is written, I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. This was actually um, said by the prophet Malachi. Right? You can find it in Malachi. This is hundreds and hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau. And it's an after-the-fact statement. I loved Jacob, I hated Esau. He didn't foreordain that while they were in the womb that, you know what, I'm going to create this guy I hate because I need something to hate. That wasn't, that wasn't the deal. He prophesied in advance one's going to serve the other. The older's going to serve the younger. And then, 
look back at it now from the prophet Malachi's perspective. I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. That's a past tense statement. So verse 14, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. Is God unjust that He chose one over the other? He knew the choices that we're both going to make. And He will respond to you according to your choices. He has destiny and purpose and calling on your life. That doesn't mean you'll automatically walk in it. You know, we know that God's will doesn't just come to pass automatically. Because it's, Scripture tells us multiple times that it's not His will that any should perish. And yet people perish and they go to hell. And that's not what God's will is for them. That's not what they were called to. That's not what He created them for. And yet it's happening. So His will is not happening in their life. In fact, I'll take you over and I'll read some verses to you. He asks the question, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Is God just? I expected to get a lot of response on that. Is God just? Yeah, justice is a big deal to Him. A big deal. Well, in Ezekiel 18 in verse 25, reading to the end of the chapter, God says this. God is quoting them. He says, but you say, the Lord's way isn't fair. Now listen, house of Israel. A lot of translations, that word fair is translated just. The Lord's way isn't just. Okay, It's not just. The Lord's not being just. How come He picked Him and not me? He says, you guys are saying the Lord's way isn't just. Now listen, house of Israel. Is it my ways that are unfair? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, he will die for this. He will die because of the injustice he has committed. But if a, if a wicked person turns from the wickedness he has committed, see the key word here is turns, repents, turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will preserve his life. He will certainly live because he thought it over and turned from all the transgressions he had committed. He will not die. But the house of Israel says the Lord's way isn't fair. Is it my ways that are unfair, house of Israel? Isn't it your ways that are unfair? Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your rebellious acts so they will not become a sinful stumbling block to you. So does he want them to change? To turn from these ways? Yes, it's not his will that they be judged like what he is pronouncing. Verse 31, throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the Lord's declaration. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. Repent and live. So is the Lord just? Yes. He He didn't create people so that He could send them to hell. It's people's choice to go there. And furthermore, hell was never invented or designed or created for man. It was made for the devil and for his angels. And if you serve them, you get to go there with them. By your choice, not by his. Alright, verse 14, um, 15. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. 
So here, if you don't understand some things about the hardening effect of God, you will think that God is choosing to make people hard. That it's by His choice that that Pharaoh was hardened against God. Well, basic 101 Bible here. What we know about the character of God is that He does not create someone to work against Himself and then judge them for doing it. That would be unjust. And He even goes on and asks this question because He knows this question is coming up in a a little bit. We'll read the verse. But the point is, is that God is not creating Cain to be a murderer. You're going to murder and there's nothing you can do about it. You're a murderer. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to judge you for doing what I created you to do. That's not God. We know that about Him. How do we know that? Because we have hundreds and thousands of other Scripture verses that tell us different about Him. And what's important to Him. So it's important that we examine Scriptures through the lens of other Scripture. And when it comes to Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, um, you can go back and read in those accounts and, and multiple times God says, I will harden him. I have hardened him. But then when you read in there, it also says, and Pharaoh hardened himself. He hardened his own heart. No, I wasn't. In Psalms 81, I'm gonna, um, you don't need to turn there. We'll put these up on the screen. But Psalms 81, verse 11 and 12. I want you to listen to a number of verses that I'm going to read to you. And you will begin to see something about being hardened. And what is actually hardening a person or hardening Pharaoh. Psalms 81, verse 11 says, But my people did not listen to me. Israel did not obey me. Verse 12, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own plans. I gave them over to their own stubborn heart. To their own, not the stubborn heart I created them with. I gave them over to their own stubborn heart. Okay, look at Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 24. Now, this is in chapter 1, is talking about um, how that the whole world knows there's a God based on looking around. You can look at the sky, you can look around. Everyone knows within themselves. Well, here he says, Therefore God delivered them over in the cravings of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. So what did God do? God delivered them over. He didn't create them this way. He gave them over to something. Look at verse uh, 26. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. For even their females exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So God delivered them over to these things. Look at verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. You could say they're hardened. They're hardened. Um, In Hebrews 3, in, in verse 13, in the NIV, I'll read it to you. 3.13 But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How does God harden a person? By giving them over to the hardening effects of sin. By giving them over to the way they want to go and the hardening effects of sin. The unpardonable sin is a perfect example of this very thing happening. 
They blaspheme the Holy Spirit, so He just gives them over. And because they blaspheme the one who would invite them, they can no longer be invited. And they no longer want to be invited. All desire to live righteously has left them, and they will never desire it again. That's why it's an unpardonable sin. They will never have the call to repent from it. No desire to repent. That is the utmost state of hardening. God just giving them over to it. Not that He made them be that way. Right? Alright, let's keep reading here in verse 19. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? Again, if we took just that, those two verses alone, we would go away saying, well, I am the way He made me to be and there's just no changing me. And so He made me a vessel unto dishonor. And so I'm going to live this hedonistic lifestyle and be disrespectful and all these things because God made it me that way and who are you to find fault with that? I mean, there's people that believe that foolishness. Because they take a verse out of context and don't look at it through the lens of other scriptures. And we can look at this through the lens of other Scripture. For example, um, actually before I do that, I want to read to you out of Jeremiah the story of the potter and the clay. And I want you to notice what happens there. In Jeremiah 18.1 This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to, at once to the potter's house. There I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was, working away at the wheel. But the jar he was making from the clay... So what was the potter's intention? To have a jar. The potter's intention was to make a jar. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar as it seemed right for him to do. He made it into another jar. Notice that it wasn't the potter who was flawed, it was the lump of clay that was flawed. And so he had one plan for it, but because of the way the clay was, he, okay, gave it another purpose. In verse 5, the word of the Lord came to me, House of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I plan to do to it. And at another time I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to me, I will relent concerning the good I had said I would do to it. So now say to the men of Judah and to the residents of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am about to bring harm to you and make plans against you. Turn now each from your evil way and correct your ways and your deeds. He's saying, look, I had this plan, this shape a jar for you, but you all are just being a naughty piece of clay. And so if you don't shape up, I'm going to turn you into a different lump. We'll use you as a toilet brush holder. One for dishonor. You get the picture. Instead of a drinking cup, it's a toilet. Alright, back in Romans. That went to pot. <laughs> so, he, he, I'm going to start reading in verse 18 again. And read down to where we were at. So then, He has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy. And He hardens whom He wants to harden. 
In other words, the one that heart... You know, the same sun melts wax, hardens clay. Melts wax, hardens clay. It's our response to the Lord which determines if we're hardened or not, or softened. And it's not... You know, Jesus said things that offended people. Some people were offended, some were blessed. Some received revelation, but other people were offended. And if God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh, or I'm going to harden this person, hear it like this. If I say, you know, I'm going to go tell them whatever it is. I'm going to tell this person, and they're going to be offended. I'm going to offend this person by what I say. Am I the one choosing offense? No, they are. The next person right beside him might be as blessed as blessed could be. But that person is offended. Now, did I offend them? Yeah, so to speak. That's how we would say it. I will offend them when I say that. But I'm not desiring that for them. I am not creating the offense for them. They're the ones reacting to the words in offense. The other person reacted with the anointing of God on them and they melted and repented. And so in the same way as, as wax and clay to the Lord. So he says, I'll have mercy on whom I want to have mercy and I'll have harden whom I want to harden. You will say to me therefore in verse 19, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God wanted to display His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? So again, if we just stop here and we don't look at the character of God, we would think, oh, some people are... Built to be objects of wrath. That's their purpose. Not true. Because if you just jump right over to chapter 10 and look at verse 11 through 13, how would, if that, if, if that was a standalone statement that some people are just created to be objects of wrath, then how would 11 through 13 be true? 11 says, for the scripture says, Everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone, whoever may, call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call. Whoever may call. In Revelations it says whoever will come may come and drink freely from the water of life. So it's up to us People are not created with the purpose of destruction. Even though, just like he said to Pharaoh, you know, he says, you know what, I created you for my glory to be shown. The problem is Pharaoh chose the wrong way. Pharaoh, the glory of God, could have been revealed in Pharaoh a completely different way. And Egypt could be, the Egyptians could have had a special place in Scripture because they sent out the Israelites and blessed them and were forevermore allies of them and, and the children of God. And the glory of God was revealed all through Egypt. See what I'm saying? It was his choice which way this thing went. But he was destined to show forth the glory of God one way or the other. In 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 16, it talks about how there's a veil that lies over the Jew's mind when the law is read today. And that that veil is only set aside when a person turns to Christ. And when they believe on Christ, that veil is removed. That hardening is removed. Okay? In uh, fact, let's look at objects of wrath. Let's go to, um, or we'll just put it up on the screen. I want you to see some things here. Because you were not 
Nobody was created to have God's wrath with the purpose of God's wrath being displayed on them. In Proverbs, or in Romans 1, verse 18. In Romans 1, 18, and then we'll look at Romans chapter 2 as well. It says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's theirs, it's not God's. He didn't create them that way. Uh, Look in chapter 2 at verse 5 and then at verse 8. But because of your hardness, whose hardness? Your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. There is a day of wrath coming. And you were not built for that. You were not designed for that. In fact, He made a way for you to come out of that. But you have the opportunity to store up for yourself that wrath and to drink fully of the cup of His wrath. Look at verse 8. But wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking, so the selfish, and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness. Those are the ones who store up wrath for themselves. And now finally, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 36. uh, John 3... Is there a famous verse in John 3? John 3.16, right? That whosoever will may come and believe and shall not be condemned. You know, an amazing verse on the whosoevers. Anyone who may come. But in verse 36 of chapter 3, John 3.36, it says the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe. It means he had the opportunity to, but he refuses it. The one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So by default, God's wrath is on us. Did you know that? Before Christ, His wrath is on us. It's set aside in Christ. I mean, we have something to be thankful for. This is, this is Thanksgiving month, right? We have something to be thankful for that we've been spared of that. That we don't have to go through that. And being, you know, in Thessalonians it even talks about how the children of God were not created to be, His wrath is not for them. Right? And I don't think that's a rapture scripture. That's simply, I mean, it talks about rapture in there. Um, But the thing is, is that He created us for something else. Every relationship with Him. And, And if the wrath of God is not made for us, is not designed for us, it's a little bit like, um, the children of Israel in Egypt, when the plagues came, the wrath of God was revealed upon Pharaoh and his people like when it was dark, but yet there was light for the Israelites. Them not having the wrath of God on them didn't mean they didn't exist in the earth anymore, that they were raptured out, right? But rather, it just simply means that you could be in the middle of a situation God's judging, but you, the wrath of God is not on you for that, right? Alright, let's keep reading here, verse 23. And what if He did this to make known the riches of His glory? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read down through um, verse 13 of chapter 10. I'm not going to comment a whole lot, maybe just a few times. Um, But I think it's important that we at least get that far to take what we've taken because it needs context. Or we need context on the back end of what we've been talking about on, on the Israelites and on the Gentiles. And verse 23, and what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. See, he, he refers to himself, us, 
Jews and Gentiles. It's us now. Ephesians says he took down the wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile and made them one. Made them one. So he, now it's us. If you're a believer, it's us. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. Verse 25. As it also says in Hosea, Hosea the prophet, and he quotes, I will call not my people, my people. And she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There, they will be called sons of the living God. That's the Gentiles. Right? People that were not my people, they're now called sons of the living God. Or any Jew that also received the Messiah as Savior. 27, but Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, meaning ethnic Israel. Though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Since the Lord will execute His sentence completely and decisively on the earth. The Dewey Rames Bible is a better literal translation of this verse as far as literally what verse 28 says. Uh, it says, He shall finish His word and cut it short in justice because a short word shall the Lord make upon the earth. But I think the CSB does a better job at expressing the original meaning of the verse here in Isaiah. If you go back and look in Isaiah and read that verse that he's quoting, and he just says, since the Lord will execute His sentence completely and decisively, or quickly and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, verse 29, if the Lord of armies had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. Namely, the righteousness that comes from faith. Now imagine you're that young Jewish man or woman sitting there in the service as they read this missionary letter from Paul and you're just in disbelief at this point. What in the world is going on? And you're hearing these things. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on Him will not be put to shame. They put more confidence in their ethnic heritage than in relationship with God. In verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end or the completion of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and His righteousness to you who believe. Since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, he, Moses wrote, and he said, the one who does these things will live by them. Verse 6, but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Faith doesn't talk that way. Faith isn't looking to get a hold of Christ, because faith believes Christ is already here. It says on verse 8, on the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you. 
in your mouth, and in your heart. The Spirit of the Lord lives within us. Right? The Spirit of the Messiah. So, we are temples of the, Holy, of the Holy Ghost. We are temples of God. He lives within us. And so we're not looking to bring Him from above or from beneath. He's already within. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. It's a promise. Plan on it. The message is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you... And he's talking to that young Jewish person sitting in the congregation listening to this letter going, well, what about us Jews? I guess we're just up the creek without a paddle. You know, because here I guess the Gentiles, we've been forsaken now, the Gentiles have it. And he's going, no, no, no. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. How do I be saved, Pastor? Right here. Believe. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And with your mouth say, Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. That's what it takes. It doesn't take a church membership. It doesn't take attending church four times a week. It doesn't take any of that stuff. This is what it takes to begin your relationship with the Father on a personal basis. Rather than knowing about God, now you know God intimately because He lives within you. So confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. I think it was last week, maybe I said faith is voice activated. Faith is voice activated. You have the faith in your heart and it's activated by what you say out of your mouth. One believes with the heart resulting in right standing with God. Right with God. And one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Why are we still having this Jew and Greek conversation? There's no distinction. It's all one now. It says, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone, whoever may call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's where I want to end tonight before we go into um, singing and praising the Lord in song. I want to invite you, if you have never made Jesus the Lord of your life, this is how you do it. If you believe, if you honestly believe that Jesus is real, that He was raised from the dead, you already covered the believe in your heart part. Now, out of that, is going to come actions that correspond to that belief. And out of that place of believing it will now also confession of the mouth come. And what does that look like? It just means acknowledging Jesus is my Lord. I submit to You, Lord. You have Lordship over me. You are my King, my Master. And I surrender to You. And that blood of Jesus is now applied to you and washes and cleanses your conscience, washes away all sin. You have complete right standing to come right into the throne room with God and and receive all that He has for you. And your family at that point. It's that easy. Alright? If you would, if, is there anyone here that has never made Jesus the Lord of your life that you would like to do that right now? I'll lead you in a prayer and we'll all pray it together. Just right, stand up if, if there's anyone here that says, I would like to do that and I never have. Alright, if you, if you, in a little bit, if you go, you know what, I, I didn't stand up because I didn't have the courage to. Whoever brought you to the service, 
Ask them. Hey, would you, would you agree with me on this? Or not agree. Would you? No. You, all the, the only agreement that needs to happen is you and the Lord. The reason you want to talk to the person that brought you is because you need to have some accountability in your life. It helps you when you tell someone, you know what, I prayed that tonight. You can pray it while we're singing and while we're worshiping. And then you can tell someone, look, I made that commitment. Hold yourself accountable and it will cause a boldness to come on the inside of you. And you'll, you'll just begin to see more and more growth as you walk with Him. Alright, worship team, you can come and um, join John. And let's just worship Him. Let's um, position ourselves so that the Lord, by His Spirit, can bring us revival, can revive us, can prompt us, lead us. If you, in, in your conscience... If you have a troubled conscience or you've not been free in your conscience, put it before the Lord. Put it under the blood. Don't keep ignoring it. But deal with it tonight. And go home clear conscience. Able to freely hear from the Lord. No hindrances. No blockages. You say, well, well, how do I exactly do that? Well, just put it under the blood. If you've sinned, repent. Turn from it. Don't do that anymore. Acknowledge it to the Lord. If you have a restitution you need to make with an individual, go do that. And you'll be amazed at the release in your conscience that you will experience. and greatly to be praised. There is no end. There is no end to the things how we could magnify Him and bless Him and lift up His name. Psalm 103, it's a song. I'm not going to sing it. I'll quote it. My soul bless the Lord and all that is within me bless His holy name. Come on, someone bless His holy name right now. Lord, I bless the name of Jehovah. I bless the name of Jesus. You are worthy of all my praise. I exalt you, King of kings and Lord of lords. My soul bless the Lord and do not forget all His benefits. We could be here all night naming the benefits of the Lord. Here's several. He forgives all our iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. Let's just say this. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. He crowns me crowns me with faithful love with faithful and love with compassion and with compassion. he satisfies me he satisfies with me good things with good things my youth my youth is renewed like the eagle is renewed like hallelujah the hallelujah hallelujah the anointing of the lord is upon you to declare his goodness to declare His goodness everywhere you go. So this week as you go, go declaring. 
Go declaring, this is how good God is. This is what God wants to do for you. Go and tell it. Go and tell the good news. Father, I present these people, your sheep, to you, Lord. And I ask you to give a great boldness upon us this week. A boldness to declare Your Word. A boldness to minister in spirit and in truth. A boldness, Lord, that comes from a heart of love. A place of compassion. With eyes to see it. Eyes that see signs and wonders. Eyes and ears that see lightning and thunder. What You want to do in the earth, Lord. More than just in this moment, but a bigger picture, a bigger heart, a bigger vision. That's what I'm asking for the people of Church of the Word International. Lord, have Your way in us. Your will be accomplished through us. We are yours. We are the sheep of your pasture. And we bless you and submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. And someone say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Well, one way that we love God in this house is we love on each other. We check up on each other. How are you? How are you doing? Is there something I can do for you? Is there something I can pray for you? So check up on each other as you go. There is refreshments downstairs for everyone you're invited to that. There's an elevator that you can use to get there. And um, everyone's invited for it. In Jesus' name, be blessed. everyone. Praise the Lord. Amen. God bless you, each and every one of you. Thank you so much for coming to Church of the Word International tonight here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Are you glad to be here tonight? Or I know I am. I look forward so much to Saturday night to see you, the body of Christ in this local church. Amen. Do you know that the Lord brought you? You're not here by perchance. He drew you here. Do you realize that? Isn't that beautiful? And for a reason, because we need you here. Amen. I'd like to encourage you in our time together, our worship time together, in Psalms 105. I love the Psalms. But in Psalms 105, if you read the whole Psalm, it's a list of all the things that God did for the Israelites as he brought them out of Egypt. He provided for their needs. There's so many things, supernatural miracles. that He brought them out with silver and gold, and there wasn't any feeble among any of them. He spread out a cloud for their covering and a fire at night. He brought them quail and, and bread, and he rock came out of a, a water came out of a rock. Just so many things that he demonstrated his providence, his care, his delivering prop, uh, uh, provision for them. And how many of you know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He never changes. And what he did for them, he will certainly do for you and make it personal for me. He is that same God. And really, 
the Bible says that we're to learn from the example of the Old Testament that God is that same God for all of us. So Psalms 105, he's putting us into remembrance of all the faithfulness and the kindness, the goodness, the mercy that God is and has been for each one of us in our life and he starts off in psalms 105:1. oh give thanks to the lord how many of you got something to be thankful about tonight call upon his name see that's putting him in remembrance make known his deeds among his people that's why we give testimonies right that means he'll do it again and he'll do it for you sing to him sing psalms to him talk of all his wonderful works glory in his holy name let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the lord seeking the lord with all your heart seek the lord and his strength seek his face forevermore remember his marvelous works which he has done and specifically what he has done for you his wonders and the judgments of his mouth O seed of abraham his servant you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Our Father is a good and faithful Father. His essence is love. He can't help himself. He can't help but love you. So if you're going through anything right now and you just don't even know how to navigate through it, seek him. Call upon his name. Remember in your heart all the times that he delivered you and been faithful to you. What does that do? It strengthens you on the inside. So let's stand up tonight. And as we do that, let's stand together as a covenant people to worship the one and only true God who has been faithful to each and every one of us and will continue to be. Amen. just as you did, Jesus. So thank you for tonight. Thank you for your presence with us tonight, Jesus. We thank you that you're the head of the body. We're your body. And we thank you that we can come together tonight and honor and celebrate your presence with us. Father, we just thank you for the good word of God tonight. We thank you for the blood that was shed for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that is here in us, with us, working through us. 
We're just so grateful tonight for this time together to come together in the freedom of the Spirit, giving you all the glory. And that's what we do tonight, Lord. We know that one way we love you is by loving one another. And thank you for helping us love each other well. So turn to your neighbor and just say, I'm so glad you're here. God bless you. Encourage them. Hallelujah. Well, good evening, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good? We would like to welcome you. If you're here for the very first time, can you just wave at us a little bit so we can know who you are? It's okay. We're not going to ask you to do a dance or a song or anything like that. Just wave at us if this is your first time right over here. Eric brought his parents. We're really glad you're with us tonight. Thanks for coming out. All right. Anybody need a cash envelope for your giving, you can raise your hand, and our ushers will bring you one. If you're giving by credit card, please fill out all of the blanks. So I'm going to encourage us tonight in putting our trust in that God is our supply. He's our supply, amen? Amen. And you know, he knows um, any problem, any obstacle that we could come up against, he's already aware of that. Do you believe that? He already knows about it and he has a solution. And um, if you read in Luke chapter 12, which we've been reading for the last couple of weeks, you'll see that, that Jesus himself said we're not to seek our own provision. He said, don't worry about it. Don't seek that. Seek this. And he said to seek the kingdom of God. Or you could say, seek the plan of God, because that we all have a part in the kingdom of God, in advancing the kingdom of God, and my part's going to look different than yours. What does God want you to do? Pursue after that, and he'll take care of all the rest. He'll add all those things um, to you. So most people have a plan for their life. So whose plan? Whose, whose plan is coming first, God's or mine? And that, that's a good question. Whose plan am I putting first? Turn over to Psalms. I'm, gonna, I'm telling you where we're going, and then we're going to drive there. <laughs> so um, Psalms chapter 81, and then in verse 6, we're going to start reading. Now the Lord's talking to his children here. And he's saying some things to him. He says, I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. Doesn't that sound like God saying, look, I have the, prov- the burden of provision on me. He, I, I've re- relieved you of the burden of figuring out your provision. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. You know what? I find it really interesting. Every time... Do you ever think about how many times this testing at the waters of Meribah comes up? So when you see that, you should sit up and take note and read about that. What was going on? And, you know, what was going on is they were quarreling because they ran up against lack. They ran up against a problem, and they started quarreling and blaming people. And they were pointing at Moses And accusing him of all this stuff like, yeah, you just brought us out of Egypt to die. I mean, come on, produce something here. They're pressuring people. No, never pressure people. You know, if you're pressuring people, then then you're not in faith. That is a sign of you're not in faith. 
So that's what was going on there. And, and they were, it says they tested God, saying, can God do this? Can God really provide? So that's the story about the waters of Meribah. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel, you shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not worship any God other than me. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. So they were accusing Moses, but really the finger was pointed at God. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Doesn't that sound like God saying, I want to provide? You know, walk in my plan for you. Let me fill and provide for you. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. See, they liked their plan better. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. Fine, follow your own plan. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, in other words, God's plan, how quickly, did you see that? How quickly, God says, I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you, those that were following his plan, those that were in step with him, But you would be fed with the finest of wheat. With honey from the rock would I satisfy you. God wants to satisfy you with the best. That's what he wants to do. Now, flip back a couple pages to Psalm 78. And we're going to read, like I said, we're driving there. God is our supply. He is the source. And he doesn't want us doubting that. So here in Psalm 78, just bringing out more of really what Karen started down my, the path I was going, talking about remembrance of um, the children of Israel and things like that, it says in verse 9, um, the men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. So it sounds like God had a plan and they had a plan and they went with what they seemed best. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. And then it goes on the next several verses talking about the miracles that were done and how he divided the sea and led them through it and guided them by day and night with this cloud. And he did all these things. He brought water from the rock. Verse 17 says, but they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the most high. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved, demanding what seemed best to them. It says that put God to the test. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, yeah, I know, he struck the rock and water gushed out, but can he also give us bread? Can he also supply meat for his people? Can he also pay for groceries and keep up with inflation and the price of gas? And, and can he also pay my rent on time? And, and you see where I'm going. When the Lord heard them, he said, yeah, you know, I understand. It's really tough, and it's only natural. Any natural person is going to struggle in this area, and I really get it, and I know it's difficult, and... It says he, what does it say here? It says he was furious. When the Lord heard him, he was furious. His fire broke out against Jacob. His wrath rose against Israel, for they did not 
believe in God or trust in his deliverance. It's a really serious thing to doubt God's ability to provide and his desire to provide well. That's what they were doing here. In the face of all this stuff that he had done for them, do you see how upset this made the Lord? And before we get super hard on them, I have to look at my own life because God's done a whole lot for me. He's provided time and time again. I have no right, no reason ever to wonder and, and get into worry about anything. My eye needs to be fixed on the, on the supply. Your eye needs to be fixed on the source. You know, there's this doctrine of devils out there where, you know, that there's some kind of piety in poverty. And, and we need to just call it what I just said it is. It's a doctrine of devils. It is contrary to the character of God. Poverty. And saying, thinking there's some sort of holiness or something attached to that. Some hum, something. No, that's opposite. Contrary to what God wants for you and I. He wants his best. With the finest of, of wheat. Honey from the rock. He wants good in the middle of impossibility. Isn't that what that is? You don't get honey from a rock. Well, here's the thing. We know that God uses people to carry out his will on the earth, right? So God uses many channels to get provisions to us, but he's the source. The source is the origin of something, the, the beginning of the supply. That's, that's where it's all coming from, right? So what do we do when God changes the channel? Do you flip out? Lose it? Why, you guys are super quiet. Either you're all really tired or... (laughs) What happens if God changes the channel? It's the same source. Or weren't you looking at the source? See, here's the thing. We get really used to seeing it come through certain channels. We go to work get a paycheck and we pay our bills we go to work we get a paycheck we pay our bills and so you get really used to seeing this channel of supply come through your job and your job and your boss and your job and the clients and the sales and the customers and your job your husband and we get really used to seeing that well, if you freak out when the channel changes, then you just had trust. It just reveals you had trust in the channel instead of the source. Because the source never changes. Right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And hasn't he said, you know what? If, you'll just re- if you will return the tithe to me, which is demonstrating your trust is in me as your supply, I will open up the windows of heaven I will pour out blessing till there is more than you can receive. And you'll be like, wow, I don't know what to do. The freezer won't even hold this. i got to give some. And you'll be a channel of blessing, which is what he wanted all the way, all along anyway. Right? The source hasn't changed. So when he says, honor me with your stuff, I'm going to honor you. And guess what? Your barns are going to be full. Your, your stuff's going to be protected. He doesn't change. If it made him mad back then, when they doubted, Is he able 
oh yeah, I know that time he came through and, and just in the nick of time we had the money for this and, and God provided a vehicle and, and we had a house or we had, but can he do this one? Oh, no. Say, not me. I trust my God. I trust the supply. I trust the source. So here's my encouragement. Get your eye off the channel. Stop thinking so much about the channel of supply and looking at that. Look to the source. He's the stronghold of our life. He's the source, period. Practice that this week. All right, Pastor, you had something to share, and then if you want, you can pray over the, over the tithe. You can just stay here and, and look pretty, because you're better to look at than I am. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I received an email from Stephen Mirabella, and they are right now um, trying to finish up a project in Syria that is to do with the orphanages there. And they were uh, putting down some foundations for the tents and houses. And so they're still $25,000 short on meeting that. And they want to have it done by this winter. And so I was thinking, you know, it would be awesome if we could do at least 10% of that, which would be $2,500. So if the Lord moves on any of you and you'd like to be a part of that, um, just sow into that, just make sure that you designate it for that and we'll, make, we'll get it to them And uh, we have an opportunity to sow good seed into the ground and expect a harvest. All right, take a hold of your tithe or your offering tonight and let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have your eye on us tonight and that you're here with us and that you see everything that we do. You see the motives of our heart and we just um, present ourselves to you. We, We return the tithe to you. We give an offering to you. And we command these seeds of finances to grow and and be expanded according to your word. And we plant these, Father, into your kingdom and we look to you, Lord, as the source of our supply. And we make ourselves available to move in and through us because, Father, we want to do more than we've done before for you and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and amen. And ushers, you can pass the baskets, and the people will give to the Lord. All right, Tuesday is voting day, and I hope all of you are looking forward to going out and participating in bringing change to this country, to this state. Vote in righteousness, and please, go vote. We have Christmas party details coming soon. Um, Our Christmas Eve service will be at 4 p.m., so you can keep that um, in mind. And Shawnee, we have, Shawnee is going to come forward and share a little bit about orphans, so I'll give her the mic. Okay, good evening everybody. It's good to see all of you. So I would like to share about two things today, and yes, it all has to do with orphans, adoption, Um, bringing awareness to this in the month of November. I don't know if you know this, but November is actually Adoption Awareness Month. I didn't know that previously until we entered this realm of adoption. And then also on November 13th, um, 
is actually Orphan Sunday. Now, today is not November 13th, and we don't usually meet on a Sunday, so I figured it's okay if I share ahead. The point is to share about what is it about and why are we wanting you to be aware of it. I would like to start with scripture, so I'd like to read to you from Romans 8, verses 14, or verses 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Aren't you thankful that we get to be the sons and daughters of God? I'm so thankful that I get to be his daughter and that I know where I will be when I leave this earth. I didn't have that assurance before I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I do believe that our Heavenly Father gives us tangible things to understand the heavenly things because our mind can really struggle with those abstract things. And the first thing I wanted to mention was that adoption is very near to my heart. My grandma was adopted. Her adoption story was quite unique. And if you ever want to hear about it, I'll gladly tell you, but now's not the time. Um, I want to keep this short. And I was adopted. A lot of you might not know that. My mom is my biological mom, but when I was very little, our dad left. And when I was 13, my mom remarried, and my dad adopted me. So at 13, I was adopted. Um, Of course, the paperwork took a while, but I also got a new name. And so for me, that was very significant, feeling very lost for the first few years of my life, feeling like, why would dad leave? Why weren't we good enough? And really knowing what that feels like to be fatherless. And when my dad adopted me, it felt like, wow, now I have his name. I'm legitimately his daughter. And that meant a lot to me. Fast forward, I married Aaron, and even though we never on paper adopted, I never adopted his children, I see them as mine. And so for me, adoption has been very real for all of my life. So why am I here tonight? Well, I'd like to talk about how do many people enter the realm of adoption. As for us, it was going through the um, the avenue of hosting. So you've probably heard of hosting programs where a student from another country comes goes to another country, they live there for a few months, sometimes for a year, they study, they live with the family, and they basically get to see another family's way of life. Well, it's the same concept. The, The idea is to bring orphans to another country to live in a family, to experience what a family looks like, and hopefully also to hear the gospel. Because for many orphans, any form of um, religion that they have is very limited and it's usually very skewed. So we did that. We hosted last year. And fast forward, here we are today, mid-adoption. It is still on hold since Ukraine is still mid-war. And so we're still waiting for our children. Um, The ones we want to adopt, they're not technically ours yet. So I have a video that I'd like to show you in about a minute or so, and it has to do with hosting. Now, hosting is one avenue that you could help. It is not for the faint of heart. You can't, you don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was a tough journey, but was it worth it? Yes. Um, So I'd like to show you this video. It's about five minutes, and it's from an organization called HOW, Hosting Orphans Worldwide. There are many organizations. They are just one of the many, and they're currently the ones that I'm working with, um, especially when I'll be heading back to Italy. You know, this whole realm can feel very unreal to us because it's out there until it comes into your own home and becomes very real. So I have a table out in the back. If you would like to chat to me about hosting, adoption, anything concerning this realm, I'd love to chat to you after the service. If you'd like to help, there are various ways. One of those ways is that you can give. 
um, Pastor Sid and Jen have been very kind to say that if you would like to give to what we're doing currently in Italy, uh, one of the orphanages there, actually where four of my children currently are, um, I'll be going in two weeks. So I'll be leaving for Italy for the second time on the 17th. We'll be there for two weeks. And what we do while we're there is we literally find out what is it that they need. Do they need hygiene products? Do they need clothing? Right now it's getting very cold, and we know that the children do not have coats. They do not have pajamas. <laughs> they sleep in their everyday clothing. They have one blanket on the bed, and there's no heat in the building. So imagine how that would be for us right now. Now, right now it's really balmy out there, but about a week ago, maybe in two weeks, we know how cold it's going to get. So one of the things I'll be doing with Anna, who's going with me, she's also an adoptive mom, her boy is also there, we'll be spending time with the kids, doing crafts with them, doing homework with them, and helping to provide things that they need that are, those are non-negotiable needs. It's something that's not a like, it's a need. So that's what we will be doing. And I do want to read one more verse here um, in James 1.27 where it says, and this this is talking about being a doer of the word. So I just want to give you that context. And then it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So how can you help? Well, you can pray for us. If you'd like to do something tangible and you'd like to give, there are various ways. I have information in the back. Please do pray for not just the orphans from Ukraine, for all orphans. And if there's something you can do and you want to get involved, please let me know and talk to me. Blessings to all of you and thank you. You know, being pro-life is about more than just not killing babies. It's so much more than that. And um, Shawnee, you started reading in, in Romans 8. You read verse 14, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. I want to read another verse to you. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then it talks about how the Spirit testifies with us that we are God's children. And adoption should be near and dear to all of our hearts because all of us have been adopted. Right? It's not just those uh, people that have been adopted uh, into a physical family, but we've been adopted into the family of God. And so when you find an opportunity to assist someone that is in the adoption process, by all means, you know, seize it. Consider or even pray, you know, should you adopt someone? None of us are... Um, how would I say all of us are called to different things but all of us should be able to look around us and, and find a way to help in the life process of giving families or supporting a family that is giving uh, a home to children hallelujah thank you for shawning, uh, shawning that yeah thank you for shawning that Sherry thank you for sharing that Shawnee and um, that's good. We needed something to laugh at. It's a little bit serious in here. So you all can laugh at me. <clears throat> so we are going to... Actually, before I do that, remember... Well, you probably don't need to remember because our services are tonight so you can sleep in tomorrow morning. But you get that extra hour of sleep tonight. So that's good news. Of course, the bad news is they took it from you and you're just getting back what already belongs to you. So, <laughs> But at least we get it back. 
and um, you can be well rested tonight. Also, next Tuesday, I know uh, Pastor Jen already talked about this, but next Tuesday is the election day, so be sure to take the time, go out and, and serve your community by voting, and vote righteously. Ecclesiastes tells us the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool goes to the left. So uh, it's never more true than in our elections.